Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We come to the... In Genesis 35, we come to the closing scene of Jacob's life. Yes, Jacob will be mentioned later on, even in the following chapters, but only he's more so in the background after this. He's no more you know, front and center, uh, and the focus is not going to be on his life. You know, as we've considered the, the life of Jacob, we know that he was, he was a person who, from his birth, was a heel grabber, a deceiver, the go-getter who would trample on other people to get what he wanted. God appeared to him uh, in many ways and was gracious to him. In fact, uh, a few chapters back, we saw of how Despite all that God had done for him while he was in Padan Aram, while he was under Laban, and how God freed him from Laban and made him prosperous and brought him back, Jacob was still trusting in himself and not dependent on the Lord. And the Lord mercifully wrestled with him in the darkness before he entered the land. And he put his hip out of joint, and he would permanently have a limp for him to recognize how weak he is and that he is to depend on the Lord. That too was a grace from the Lord. And we see that then when he goes to see his brother Esau, who he was so scared of, that God had miraculously worked in Esau's life such that there was a wonderful reunion Esau no longer wanted to kill Jacob. There was a a reunion between the brothers, and even though Esau never acknowledged the Lord, and as a result they had to part ways, but peaceably part ways. And in all of that, we saw that, okay, there is some change happening with Jacob. Because he was giving all the glory to God and he was saying, this is all of God's grace, what has happened in my life. So there was certainly some change that was taking place in this hard-hearted man. And yet last week, as we looked at Genesis 34, it, it was a very dark chapter. See, Jacob had not protected his daughter from wandering into the foreign land of Shechem. And we saw of how she was violated and defiled by, the, uh, by, the, by Shechem, the prince of the land. And then we also saw of how Jacob had not prevented his sons from destroying the men in Shechem in vengeance. Yes, uh, that, that desire for justice was good, but justice was not carried out. That was vengeance. That was a massacre. That was punishment that was so out of proportion to the crime of one man where the entire men of that city were wiped out. And then we saw on top of that, at the end of the scene where Jacob is so passive in all of this, 
where Jacob was only concerned about himself and his name and what would ultimately happen to him. A believer, but a deeply flawed man. He has a long ways to go with his walk with the Lord. And now as we come to Genesis 35 in this last chapter or last scene, so to speak, in Jacob's life where he's front and center. It is a chapter, again, of God's grace of how God brings this rebellious person, this hard-hearted, deceiving person, self-centered person like Jacob, back to the Lord and back home. And I pray that as we look at this chapter, we would marvel again afresh of how God deals with his people. We would get a sense again of how we have sinful tendencies and yet how graciously and gloriously God has dealt with believers like us. And I pray that this would cause us to want to faithfully live for Him and for His glory. See, if Genesis 34, the the intent of that passage was all about the dangers of being conformed to the world around, and it served as a warning. This chapter, the, I believe the intent of this chapter is ultimately to see God's gracious work in the life of Jacob and his family. And, and for the readers and the listeners to then say, yes, I want to be committed to this Lord, and I want to live for Him and Him alone. I've titled this morning's sermon as God Brings Jacob Home. And we're going to look at this section under three headings. God's restoring grace in verses 1 through 7. God's covenant promises in verses 8 through to 21 and God's sovereign working in verses 22 to 29. And as far as length of points go, our biggest point will be the first point, and our shortest point will be the last point. So, from Genesis 34, Jacob did not look very good. I mean, he was still so passive. He was dishonoring the Lord in so many ways. Now, at this point, if it was you or I dealing with Jacob, we would have no problems in saying, I'm done with this guy, Jacob. I mean, it's been years and years and years and years of being gracious with this guy, Jacob. And look at how he is still. But isn't it wonderful that God is not like us? God doesn't abandon Jacob saying, I'm done with you, Jacob. He doesn't abandon him. In fact, God graciously appears to Jacob. Jacob. 
once again, even after how Jacob has been in Genesis 34. You know, in Genesis 34, with all that sin that, was, that we saw, you know, we're, we're thinking, why is nobody crying out to the Lord? Even believers are not crying out to the Lord. And what we see in this chapter is now God now graciously comes and calls Jacob to himself to come home. Verse 1 says, Now God said to Jacob, Mind you, this is after Genesis 34 and him saying, Oh, I don't know what's going to happen to me. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now, why would God call Jacob to go to Bethel? There are a few reasons. Well, first of all, if you think in Genesis, 20, uh, the previous chapter, Genesis 34, of what Jacob's sons had done in Shechem by destroying all the men in Shechem, You know, there would have been now, uh, you know, word would have gone around in the cities of the land of Canaan that Jacob's family is a violent family. They kill everyone and plunder everything for themselves. And so they would have been in real danger because at this point, if all the other Canaanites cities came to seek revenge, Jacob and his family would stand no chance against all the other numerous Canaanites around. They would be totally outnumbered and easily destroyed. So on the one in the one sense, there is a safety issue for Jacob's family to remain in Shechem. And if that's not all, I want you to think again of where God is calling Jacob to. It is to Bethel. That's the place where the Lord first appeared to Jacob when he was running away from his brother Esau because he had deceived him and st stolen the blessing from him. And remember, it was at Bethel that he had the vision of that stairway connecting heaven and earth, where the angels were going up and down the stairway. And it was symbolic, and it was reminding or, or vividly telling Jacob that God was not up there in the heavens, but he was down on earth, close beside Jacob. He was near Jacob and would be with him. And in light of that, in light of that vision, Jacob at Bethel made a vow, if you remember. He said, well, God, if you protect me, if you keep me safe, if you bring me back to the land, then you will be my God and I will set up God's house and give you a tenth of everything. Essentially, Jacob made a vow to establish Bethel as a place of worship. That's what he vowed. 
Now Jacob has come back to the land. But where is Jacob? He's in Shechem. In fact, he's settled down in Shechem. You know, biblical history and just other history will tell us that Shechem was a fairly prosperous city. It was good for trade and other things. Bethel, on the other hand, was on top of the hill. It was a small, tiny, insignificant place. In fact, some theologians think that Jacob and his family, having settled in Shechem, would have been in Shechem for anywhere between eight and ten years. So this is not a few weeks or a few months. We're talking he's come back to the land and he's just settled in Shechem for eight or ten years. The prosperous lifestyle of Shechem would have caused Jacob to settle down in Shechem. And because of which, Jacob has not fulfilled his vow to the Lord to make Bethel a place of worship. And if that's not all, another reason would be that while in Shechem, Jacob was not leading his family. And his children were being drawn to the world around them. That's what happened to Dinah. And in fact, even his sons were acting more like pagan people, acting out in vengeance, much like the ungodly Lamech from Genesis 4, than people of God. So for all these reasons, for physical safety, for spiritual safety, and for Jacob to fulfill his vow, despite how Jacob has been, God now graciously says to Jacob, you go to Bethel, build an altar there, and dwell there, and worship me. Now look at Jacob's response, verses 2 and 3. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. What you see here is Jacob is finally showing some spiritual leadership in his family now. Finally. He tells his household, put away your idols. Now he said, well, where did these idols come from? Well, we know when they left Laban's house, if you remember, Rachel, his beloved wife, had stolen Laban's idols. So we know that at least with Rachel, there's something going on there. And perhaps some of the servants too were idol worshippers and brought their idols from there. And then what we saw in Genesis 34, that his sons have just plundered Shechem. So it's quite likely that the sons of Jacob would have also stolen idols. Because these idols would have been made of either precious metal or precious, precious stones. So they would have been valuable items. So one way or another, what we see is Jacob had allowed 
idols to be part of his home. And so now there's a great danger for his entire household to find their security and their trust in these foreign gods that are there in his home. In fact, this was the same danger that would pose the children of Israel after they enter the land. If it's not intermarriage, it's the issue of idolatry. In fact, Jacob at the end of it all would say, you know, choose you this day whom you will serve. Put away your idols and serve the true and living Yahweh. So Jacob at this point understood that if Jacob and his family were to go to Bethel and worship God and dwell there, that means full allegiance to Yahweh alone. Full allegiance to the one true living God. That there is to be no other idols. I mean, this is what God calls his people to do throughout biblical history. I'll just take two passages, one from the Old and one from the New uh, Testament. You know, when you think of the Ten Commandments when they were given, God tells the Israelites in Exodus 20 verses 2 and 3, He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It sounds a little bit you know, similar to what he's saying to Jacob. Jacob, I was the one who appeared to you when you were in danger, when you were fleeing from your brother. Now go and worship me at Bethel. I.e., implication, have no other gods but full allegiance to me. Another passage in the New Testament, and we read this in our Bible reading this morning, from Luke 14 and verse 26. It says, if anyone comes to me, this is Jesus speaking, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. See, what Jesus is saying here is that your allegiance, your devotion and your love for Jesus should make your allegiance and your love for your family look like hate. See, because Jesus deserves the highest allegiance above everyone else and above everything else. So it is such a high devotion, such a high, high allegiance that any other association compared to that high allegiance would seem like hate. So Jacob understands this, that this is a call to commit fully to the Lord. So Jacob tells his household, put away the idols and then purify yourselves and change your clothes. You now he said, you know, why purify themselves? Well, again, when you think of how they have been as a family, 
I mean, there's idol worship going on in the household. And then on top of that, his sons have just massacred people out in vengeance. His daughter has been defiled. They were impure, and they had to now purify themselves by physically washing themselves and washing their clothes before they went to worship the the true and living God. I mean, this is again something similar to what is done in Exodus 19, when the Israelites were to approach God at Mount Sinai, that they were to purify themselves and and wash themselves and wash their clothes before they worship God. And really this kind of washing, it was symbolic in the Old Testament times. It was symbolic for the need of an inner spiritual cleansing that was needed. So it wasn't just about the external washings, hey, you're a bit dirty and you just need to clean yourself. But it was, it was pointing to their need for internal spiritual cleansing. And Jacob also tells them to change their clothes. And again, this is not about externals, you know, have new clothes. You know, you've been in Shechem for so long, it's time to get a new pair now. No, again, this changing of clothes, it represented a new way of living. In fact, notice how Jacob's household responds to what he says. Verse 4. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were there in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So the household, entire household, they give up their idols as well as their earrings. Now this is not saying that you know, wearing any kind of jewelry is wrong or sinful. But these earrings were really part of that idol worship. It was part of the culture, part of that idolatry. You know, this wasn't just a fashion statement. Now, as I was thinking about it, you know, the, the one thing that came to mind is the, the, the dot on the forehead that, you, that you'd see in India often that many of the Hindu women wear, which is called a bindi. Now, this dot on the forehead that many of the women wear in India, as far as Hinduism is concerned, it, it is symbolic of the third eye of their false god, Shiva of their idol Shiva. It's the third eye. That's, what, that's why these uh, Hindu women wear that. But then obviously over time, this, this dot has also become something of a fashion statement in India, and then from there, it's gone to the rest of the world. So similarly, when Jacob tells his household, when it says that his household gave away their earrings, it's saying that You know, it was part of the culture. It was part of that idolatry and idol worship. And they buried their idols and their earrings and everything associated with that kind of lifestyle. And they buried it under the terebinth tree. So what you see here is Jacob's household was beginning to dress and live like the world around them. They were in great danger. 
And now as God's call comes to them and as they're burying their idols and their jewelry, they're now renouncing their idolatrous ways. And they purify themselves, wash themselves, change their clothing, showing that they are now not like the world around them. They are now fully devoted to Yahweh alone, ready to worship Him alone. Now verse 5 says, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities and they were, that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. I love that. You know, Jacob, at the end of Genesis 34, he was so fearful for his life and what would happen to his family. But he had no reason to fear because the Lord had promised protection. And here it says that the cities around the, the, the fear of God fell on them. They were so fearful of the God of Jacob and his family that they didn't go anywhere near Jacob or his family. And this was God's doing. This was the Lord graciously protecting them from the godless people around them. And then verse 6 says, And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who are with him. There he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So Jacob and his family, they've now finally come to Bethel. They built an altar and they worshiped the Lord there. And Jacob calls the altar El Bethel. El is short for Elohim, which is God. So he calls the altar God of Bethel, the, the place around the altar. Now I think this is significant as well. Because remember the last time Jacob was in Bethel, and God appeared to him and God said, Jacob, I will be with you. This glorious God, this God who has come down from heaven, I will be with you. You know, at that point, Jacob wasn't thinking, what an awesome God. In fact, at that point, he was thinking, no, you know, he was thinking about the place where he said, oh, this is the gate of God. What a wonderful place this is. See, Jacob, the first time, he was more excited about the place than he was about God himself who had come to him. And it's like Jacob gets it now. That it's not about the place, but it's about God that has appeared to me. It's about God who has been with me all this time. It is this awesome God who has been with me throughout my days in my wanderings and has never let me go. He deserves all the worship. You know, a few applications from this section that I just want to bring up. Now, the washings that Jacob and his family had to do, as I said, it symbolized the need for purification. And that is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus Christ 
under the new covenant. When Jesus came into this world and shed his blood for all who will put his trust in him. You see, as believers, Jesus has cleansed us and purified us and forgiven us of our sins by washing us clean with his blood. And on top of that, Jesus has clothed us as well. He has clothed us with his righteous life. So that as believers, we now have this new life in Christ. In fact, this is exactly why then Apostle Paul in the epistles, particularly in Ephesians and in Colossians, he takes this imagery of clothing, this exact same thing of putting on clothes, where he says that as believers, you are to put off the old man, the old nature that has died with Christ. Where he says, as believers, you are not to live that way anymore because that's not who you are. Put that off. That, that nature has been crucified on the cross. Instead, as Christians, we are to put on the new man. We are to put on Christ-likeness. And this way, live distinctly as Christians in this world. This is who we are as God's Children, you know, as Christians, we should regularly take stock of our life, asking, am I living like the old man now? According to my old habits and old ways. Then I need to repent of that. I need to put it off. Because that's no longer who I am. That person is dead. I belong to Christ, so I need to put Christ on. I need to now live in a Christ-like manner. And you know what? The, the more we live like that, as we put on Christ, and as we are committed to Christ, then we will be in a place to point others to Christ. And that is, in a sense, what we see with Jacob. See, when Jacob was restored back to the Lord, what does he do then? He now spiritually leads his family as well to do the same. See, as a spouse, as a parent, as a child, as a sibling, as a friend, or even as a neighbor, the best thing as believers that we can offer of ourselves is the fruit of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. The more we love him, the more we walk according to his ways, the more we are devoted to Jesus, the more we are able to encourage others and point others to Jesus. I mean, parents especially to, should take this to heart. You know, I think of, you know, when we're in the airplane and we're, before the plane takes off, the the air hostess usually says, you know, if the, the oxygen mask falls, then you put it on yourself before you put it on your children. Why? Because, you see, if you give it first to your children and you die or something happens to you, then who's going to look after your children? And there's a sense in which it's the same here, that as the parent, as, as the 
person in the home who knows the Lord, that we would be fully devoted to the Lord as we have a restored relationship with the Lord and we're walking according to His ways, then we can then help others. Then we can be a blessing to others. Then we can point others to Jesus. Otherwise, we will be like Jacob more so in the previous chapter. Now maybe some of you sitting here are feeling discouraged. You know, you might be saying, Oh, Benoit, but I failed so many times. You know, maybe as a parent, I, I continue to fail. Or maybe you're saying, I have so many idols in my life that I'm genuinely trying to get rid of. Whether it's the idol of comfort, the idol of security, the idol of power, the idol of pleasure, whatever it is, I'm trying to get rid of these things, but there's so many idols still in my life. Or perhaps you're thinking, but no, I'm not as devoted to the Lord Jesus as I should be. Brother, sister, I hope that the way God deals with Jacob serves as an encouragement to you today. See, Jacob was a deeply flawed man. Failed the Lord so many times. And yet, the Lord did not abandon him. He continued to show grace to Jacob and ultimately that is what brought Jacob back to the Lord. And just like with Jacob, it's the same with us as believers. As we fail the Lord and sin against him time and again, the Lord doesn't abandon us, brother and sister. He doesn't. He will never forsake us. In fact, he will always only come to us as his children in grace, just like he did with Jacob. You say, why? Simply because God has chosen to show his grace to his children. That is who he is toward his children. It is nothing of us. And this alone should cause us as Christians to love the Lord more deeply and be more devoted to Him. Maybe there's someone here listening this morning and you call yourself a Christian. Or maybe you attend this church and... But in any case, you are still living in unrepentance not even striving to get rid of your idols and be committed to the Lord. You're just coddling all the idols and, and just living like the world. Friend, I want to tell you, God's call to you this morning is to turn back to Him. Return to the Lord Jesus and put away your idols. I mean, you know, idolatry in the Bible is often compared to adultery in the Bible or even prostitution. In fact, one book, if you want to really understand this, is the book of Hosea. Where, you know, the big message is this. You know, if your spouse is unfaithful to you, you know, you may not possibly take them back. 
But the Lord says, but I will take you back even though you have been unfaithful to me, even though you have gone after other idols. Return to me is what the Lord says in Hosea. Return to the Lord. Put away your idols and he will take you to himself. Because that's the kind of God he is. Now, if there's anyone here who wants to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you about Jesus at the end of the service or just speak to one of the members of this church and they would love to speak to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But turn to him and trust in him. And so in this section, we see God's restoring grace shown to a deeply flawed man like Jacob. Now that brings us to our second point, that's God's covenant blessings. And we'll move a bit more quickly now. God's covenant promises in verses 8 through to 21. And Deb, verse 8, And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. You know, when you hear this, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. You know, it should remind you at least for a split second about Rebecca, Jacob's mother. I mean, what happened to Rebecca? There's no mention of Rebecca after Jacob leaves her the first time in when he goes to Padan Aram. There's no mention of Rebecca's death. There's no mention of what happens to her. See, it's quite likely that Rebecca is dead. And her death is not mentioned because Rebecca, if you remember, deceived her husband Isaac and instigated Jacob to steal the blessing from him. So it's sort of a slight on Rebecca here where her death is not even mentioned. But only her, her nurse's death is particularly mentioned and particularly mentioned as Rebecca's nurse. And so now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, is dead. And quite likely this nurse would have cared for Jacob when he was young. And it also looks like she was dearly loved. Because Jacob names the site where, he, where Deborah was buried as Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. Great sorrow for Jacob as this dearly loved nurse, Deborah, has died. And then it says, God appeared to Jacob again, verse 9, when he came from Paran Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. See, God is reiterating again to Jacob. Jacob, you are not Jacob. You're not the supplanter. You're not the deceiver anymore. You are Israel. Live like that. The one who should cling to God while God will strive for you and lead the way. Verse 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. 
a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. So God first says, you know, be fruitful and multiply. We've heard that again and again in the book of Genesis. Started in the garden. It was the creation blessing to be fruitful and multiply. That was God's agenda. And God is essentially saying now that he is going to bring about his creation blessing through Jacob. How is he going to do that? Through the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Did you notice there? Those words use blessing in verse 9. And then seed or offspring when it talks about being fruitful and multiplying and nations coming. And then obviously there's land as well to you and your offspring. Land, seed, blessing. The promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And he also tells Jacob now for the first time after Abraham that kings will come from you. So you know, things are becoming just ever so slightly more clearer how God is going to establish this creation blessing. How God is going to restore creation. Where he's going to have a people for himself. Where he's going to rule over his people ultimately through a king and he will establish his kingdom. And we're seeing small little hints of that being dropped here. And so God is saying to Jacob, these covenant promises are for you and your descendants. Now I want you to again just think for a moment how Jacob has lived his life all this time. See, he's not a teenager, he's not even a young man, he's actually quite an old man. And when you think of how Jacob has lived his life and how God has reiterated these promises to him, I mean, we all understand Jacob doesn't deserve any of these promises. Nor has Jacob done anything to merit such promises. I mean, for the past 30 years or so, 20 years under Laban in Paran Aram and 8 to 10 years now in Shechem, for the past 30 years or so since God first appeared to Jacob, Jacob has mostly lived in disobedience. And yet, and yet the Lord says to Jacob, just like your grandfather Abraham and father Isaac, I will fulfill these promises to you. Why? Because I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. That's why. And I will bring these promises to pass. And so it says in verse 14, And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So now Jacob sets up a stone pillar again to memorialize that God had appeared to him there. And then from there, Jacob journeys on. 
verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And that's what you see, you know, in the New Testament and other passages where it's also called Ephrathah. It's the same place, Ephrathah or Bethlehem. And so Rachel died, verse 19, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar over a tomb. It is a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, was pregnant again. Remember, she had only one son at this point. She was barren for most of her life. She only had one son named Joseph. And now she's pregnant again. And while they're journeying on from Bethel to Hebron, which is where his father Isaac is, which is where home is, Rachel goes into labor when they were close to Bethlehem. And her labor was particularly difficult. And as she was dying, giving birth to a son, she names him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. But then Jacob, to celebrate his beloved Rachel, even after she has died, renames the son as Ben-Yamin, which means son of my right hand, son of honor, son of privilege. That's what you're going to be. And in fact, as Benjamin would grow up, grow up, he would be one of the favored sons of Jacob. You know, I'm sure the death of his beloved Rachel would have devastated Jacob. What do we make of this section? Well, really, in this section, you have the death of Deborah at the start, the greatly loved nurse of his mother. And then at the end, you have his beloved wife, Rachel, who dies. And bracketed between the two, in the midst of all this sadness and difficulty and sorrow, God reiterates his covenant promises to Jacob. In fact, I would say even the birth of his son, Benjamin, is part of the covenant promise of having that offspring or seed. And I think there's a lesson for, here, for us here. See, we live in a sin-cursed world. A world that is, that is full of troubles and difficulty and sorrow and death. And all this is part of living in this fallen world. All these experiences that we have. So then, how is it then as believers we can persevere living in this Horrible world, in this sin-cursed world. Answer? Only 
by walking by faith and not by sight. See, by faith we anchor our hearts to the unchanging reality of who God is and his promises toward us. He is God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is mighty to fulfill every promise that he has made and he will never fail to keep his promises. He will bring everything to pass, including the ones beyond the grave. That's how we live in this sin-cursed world. As we cling on to who he is and as we cling on to his sure promises. Now as I was thinking about this passage, I was reminded of a recent song that's come out maybe in the last year or so called Promises by Matt Boswell. I want to read to you a few of the stanzas from that song because I think it'll help us. It gets the message across about the God who is faithful to keep his promises. So it reads, Are you with us in the fire? Will you keep us in the storm? Are you still the light to guide us when the darkness overwhelms? Through the doubts and through the valleys, through the passing years we find, every promise you have spoken is yes in Jesus Christ. You began this work within us, you will bring it to end. You're the one who goes before us and you will have, have the last amen. So we set our hope on this, and on this we build our lives. All your promises are forever, are yes in Jesus Christ. You will be our God, and we will be your people. Every promise you have made is a promise kept, for you are faithful to your promises. Every promise made by our Lord is a promise that's how sure it is. The unchanging reality of who God is and his promises in Jesus Christ, that is what should anchor our soul as we navigate through the difficulties and sorrows and trials of living in this sin-cursed world. And so we move now from God's covenant promises and very quickly to God's sovereign working in verses 22 to 29. More troubles continue to follow Jacob. Verse 22 says, While Israel lived in that land, speaking of Jacob, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. I mean, two things. First of all, first thing I want to comment on is, you know, and Israel heard of it. it it's almost like you know, when we saw in Genesis 34, when Dinah was defiled, it said, and Jacob heard of it and did nothing. It's a similar sort of thing. So we still see some flaws in Jacob here. But coming back to Reuben, why would Reuben do this? Remember, Reuben is Leah's son. And Bilhah was Rachel's servant. So now that Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, is dead, you know, Reuben may have been thinking, you know, 
maybe my father is now going to favor Rachel's servant concubine, that servant who is his concubine, Bilhah, over my mother Leah, because she, he has always neglected my mother Leah. So that could be one reason why he does this. So where he wants to shame his father or, you know, d- uh, and, and do that. But beyond that, it's, it's also quite possible that this is a power play on Reuben's part. Because remember, again, Reuben is the firstborn son. The legitimate heir to the inheritance of all that Jacob has. And there's a sense in which maybe Reuben felt threatened. You know, he's never favored my, me, my brothers, or anyone. He's only favored Rachel and that family. So maybe he felt threatened. And so he's exercising his dominance, so to speak. Saying, I'm now in charge. Not you, Jacob. By sleeping with his father's concubine. You know, it's a bit like in 2 Samuel 16, 21 to 23, where Absalom does something similar, where Absalom sleeps with his father's wife, father's concubine wife. Who is Absalom's father? King David. Why does he do that? To try and usurp David's authority. To say, no, now I'm the one in charge, not you, David. So there's a similar thing that now Reuben is trying to do here, where he's saying, I am now in charge, not you, Father. Your time is over. See, what Reuben has done here is, is despicable. In fact, later on in the law, it will say that if a man sleeps with his father's wife, he should be stoned. This is a terrible sin. And again, it's showing how messed up Jacob's family is. And here's the other thing it's pointing to. Jacob was someone who dishonored his father by deceiving him. Now his son dishonors him, just in a different way. He is reaping what he has sown. Like father, like son, but just in a different way. The sins of the father following the son. Moving on, the last part of 22. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Paran Aram. Jacob now has 12 sons. I mean, this, you know, this is showing, you know, they're sort of like a nation now. Having 12 sons was a big thing. And this is something that the Lord had sovereignly brought about. But you know, what's interesting is, if you look at the order of the names here, It's not according to birth order. 
the order is really according to sort of the wives. So the first wife who was Leah and then her sons. Then the second wife, the second primary wife, which was Rachel, and then the concubine wives and their, their sons. And so this might even be pointing to there's continuing division in the family. There's continuing division between the brothers. And then beyond that, when you look at this list, Reuben has now disqualified himself from being the next heir because of what he's done with his father's concubine. The next two in line, which are Simeon and Levi, they have disqualified themselves because of what they did in Shechem by massacring all those men there and acting out sinfully. So now there's only two possibilities. The next one in line is Judah, which is the next son of Leah, or either, either Judah or Joseph, who is then the first son of Rachel. And we will see that God then sovereignly works through different things. And it is through Judah, finally, the son of Leah himself, Leah herself, where God will sovereignly bring about the king of kings. King David will come, and then finally King Jesus will come through that line. Through difficulties, through failures, even failures of the nation of Israel, God will still sovereignly bring about the birth of King Jesus through the line of Judah. So we are beginning to see how God is going to sovereignly work and bring things out according to his promise. Now quickly, verses 27 to 29, it says, And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So through all the wanderings, through all the difficulties, through all the sin issues and death and whatever else, God has still sovereignly and graciously brought Jacob back home to his father's house. Remember what Jacob had said? If you bring me back safely to the land and to my father's house peacefully, then you will be my God. God has fully fulfilled that. And really what we see here is, again, some more tragedy. As he gets there, his father also dies. And it shows that there's the passing of the previous generation is going on. And now while Jacob is now fully the bearer of the covenant promises, and he's a lot more committed to the Lord, the focus now will move on to the next generation and to see where now these covenant promises will go and where the seed will go. You know, the life of Jacob, even as it moves forward, as we look at the 
sons of Jacob, there's still going to be lots of trouble, lots of turmoil. In fact, his sons will deceive him and tell him that his beloved Joseph, the son of Rachel, has died. That'll cause him a lot of grief and he'll be sold as a slave to Egypt and we'll see all that. And yet through all these troubles and all this turmoil, you know, in some sense, Jacob is reaping the consequences of his own hard-heartedness and his ways that he had sown years before. And it is coming out in different forms in and through his son, in, in, in and through his family. And yet, we also see God being so gracious to him. Because through all this sin and chaos and mess, Joseph will go to Egypt finally to save the nation of Israel, the family of Jacob. See, the life of Jacob is really about the El Shaddai, the Almighty God, who is committed to his people. That even as his people will stray away, he passionately pursues them by his grace and brings them back to himself. So how should we respond as we listen to how God is? Lord, you are my everything. Nothing in this world will satisfy. I don't want any of the idols of this world. You have been too good to me and I want to be devoted to you and I want to follow you all the days of my life for you alone deserve all the worship. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the great God you are. We thank you for how gracious you have been. Lord, the more we see our sin and the more we turn to you, the more we see that we have not plunged the depths of your grace that you continue to show to us. And Lord, even as we understand your grace more and more shown to us through Jesus Christ, may it cause us not to live like the world, to live according to our own flesh, but may it cause us to be fully devoted to you and live all the days that you have give us, that you give us in this incursed world for your glory and for your honor. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.